Okay, um, last week, if you were here, you will know that we had a great morning baptizing five people and hearing some fantastic testimonies about what God has done and is doing in their lives. It was really great. But that doesn't mean that everything was great. Every silver lining has a dark cloud. If you were here uh, last week, you'll know I had only 10 minutes for the sermon. Now, obviously, that that upset me quite a bit. Um, So I was praying about it, and uh, I felt God was saying, don't worry, Steve, I will make this up to you. You can add the other 15 minutes on this week. But then Lynn said, well, God hasn't told me that. So what do you do when you've got two gifted, anointed, prophetic people... Both sensing God saying something different. Well, it's a variation on Go With The Woman. It's, in my case, in my life, it's you listen to Lynn, because she always hears God better than I do. The other negative consequence of having only ten minutes was that there was no time last week for any jokes. The sense of euphoria that came over the room when I told everyone that last week was both tangible and disappointing. (laughs) So we can at least make up for that this week. A little boy called Johnny is on his first day at school. What does your father do, says the teacher. He's a magician, says Johnny. How interesting, says the teacher. And what's his favourite trick? He saws people in half. Wow, says the teacher. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Yes, says Johnny. One half brother and two half sisters. (laughs) Good, eh? Thank you. One half brother and two half sisters. Yeah, okay, all right, okay, okay. Okay, no more jokes. The remainder of the talk will be relentless theology. That's a joke as well. Anyway, if you were here last week, you may remember that we looked at some Bible verses that talk about baptism. And one of the passages that we looked at is the very last thing that the resurrected Jesus says before returning to heaven. It's in the very last chapter of the eyewitness account of Jesus' life that we call Matthew's Gospel. Uh, This week, I want to look not at what it says about baptizing people, but at the bit that Jesus says just before that. So this was the passage. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And the bit that I want us to focus on today is this. Go and make disciples. It's what's known as the Great Commission. And it's the other half of what Jesus also told us to do, which is known as the Great Commandment. And that is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason that this is one commandment, singular, and not two is because in God's eyes, these are inseparable ideas. Because unless you're loving your neighbour, who you can see, then by definition, you're not loving God, who you can't see. 
And that's because in Bible terms, love isn't a feeling word, love is a doing word. Rather like what I do with my time and my money, it's how I love people and serve people that tells me and tells other people, and most importantly tells God, what I love the most in my life. So for the rest of this morning, I want to focus on this bit where Jesus said, go and make disciples. And the first thing we see here is that if disciples are made, then being a disciple probably doesn't come naturally. And we'll see that a bit in a minute. So what does it mean to make disciples? And what does it mean to be a disciple? You know, it's interesting that neither Jesus himself nor the Apostle Paul, who's the main author of the New Testament, neither of them uses the word Christian. The first time we see it it is in Acts chapter 11, where it says that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And it probably started off as a nickname or a term of ridicule. Now, the Greek word is Christos. And unluckily for me, there was a Greek person who was here last Sunday who very gently pointed out to me after the service the inadequacies of my pronunciation of New Testament Greek. So I gave her a chocolate bar, um, not so much as a thank you for pointing that out, but as a bribe not to tell anyone. (laughs) Anyway, the literal meaning of this Greek word that may or may not be pronounced Christos from which we get our word Christian, is someone who belongs to Christ. That's kind of nice, isn't it? Someone who belongs to Jesus. We don't tend to think of that as the meaning of the word Christian now. But this word Christian only appears in the New Testament in three verses. The other words that are used are believers and followers. But by far the word that is used the most multiple times more than all of the rest put together, over 250 times, in fact, is the word disciple. And it's, uh, it's kind of ironic that for us today, the word disciple is probably the least obvious of the whole lot in terms of what it means. But, you know, if that's the word that the Bible likes to use, uh, especially when it's Jesus talking, then we really need to try to get our heads around what it means so that we know what we're getting ourselves into if we're going to be one. I don't know about you, but I really do not want to be giving myself to a way of following Jesus that isn't the way that he has in mind, that isn't the best way possible, because that really would be pretty stupid. If I'm going to do this Jesus thing, if he is who he says he is and this is the truth about God and what it means to know God, then sure as anything, I want to make sure that I'm doing it properly. I don't want to be half Christian any more than I want to be half pregnant. Now, obviously, I can't be any kind of pregnant, um, so the analogy breaks down a bit, but you kind of get my point, or at least I guess the women will get my point. Another reason why we need to explore what a disciple is is because all of the other words that we could use have been devalued. The problem with the word believer, for example, somebody who believes in Jesus, is that we can believe something without it ever 
impacting on our lives. Because our beliefs change, but our life doesn't. And to any of the biblical authors, that would have been simply inconceivable. And the problem with the word follower is something that we've got Facebook to thank for. You know, I was uh, quite proud of the fact that 65 people follow me on Facebook. Until I found out that 165,000 people follow Justin Welby. Not that I'm jealous, but it does put my popularity into perspective. And again, the problem with a follower is that you can pick and choose what you take on board. So neither believer nor follower is particularly helpful. And even Christian has kind of lost its meaning over time. So in the time that we've got this morning, I want to very quickly run through five characteristics, five things that it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Five things that are the difference between being a disciple versus a believer or a follower. And what I'd like us to do as I run through these is to invite us to examine our lives before God. And this is all between us and God. No one's going to be uh, asking you questions afterwards. Just between us and God. And ask ourselves to what extent our life is a reflection of these five features of what a disciple looks like. So let's start with how it all began for Jesus' first disciples, the ones who were the closest to him that we call the 12 apostles, his original connect group, if you like. And we'll look at Matthew's Gospel where it says this. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Now, if we only ever read the first part of Matthew's Gospel, we could easily get the impression from this that Peter and Andrew and James and John had never met Jesus before. That suddenly and randomly this complete stranger comes along and says, drop everything and come and follow me round the country. And even more weird that they would say yes to that. But if we look at some related passages in uh, the other Gospels, the passages in John 1 and, and Luke 5, we see that they did actually know Jesus before this. So the significance of this story isn't that these four people suddenly drop everything to respond to a complete stranger, but that for each of them, there came a point in their lives where the Jesus they knew in part invited them to say yes to becoming a full part of his mission a point at which Jesus posed a question to them. A bit like uh, when a couple moves from being just friends to that will you marry me moment. A point at which Jesus first asks us the question, will you be my disciple? And invites us to say yes. The story is saying that there comes a point at which Jesus says the nature of our relationship 
has to change to a new level. From me being someone who simply knows about Jesus to someone who moves to a whole new level of intimacy and closeness to Jesus, who brings my story and my life under Jesus' story and Jesus' life. When the business of my life gets reprioritized, it moves down in the pecking order below the business of his life, which is, of course, the kingdom of God. So the first characteristic of a disciple compared to just a believer or a follower is that we're someone who says yes to Jesus' invitation. And if you're someone who, when you came here this morning, maybe you'd have called yourself a believer or a follower, you've been around church for a bit and you know about Jesus, but you realize that you can't point to a moment in your life when you've actually prayed a prayer to say yes to Jesus' invitation, then we would love to do that and pray with you a bit later. But I want you to notice that I didn't say a disciple is someone who said yes to Jesus in the past tense. A Christian isn't someone who said yes to Jesus once. A Christian is someone who keeps on saying yes to Jesus in the continuous present tense. And the reason for that is simply because Jesus is asking us questions all the time. So it's not a case of whether he's asking, it's whether we're listening and whether we're answering. A Christian is someone who keeps on keeping on saying yes to Jesus as he asks us questions in our life. The second characteristic of a disciple is that we're someone who's a learner and a copier. Notice that I didn't say a disciple is someone who has a teacher. I had lots of teachers at school, but I didn't do much learning. And that's because the point of any teaching, whether it's in school or in church or on a hillside in Galilee, isn't the teaching, it's the learning. The Greek word for disciple literally means a learner or an apprentice. But I like the word learner because it kind of challenges me. It's asking me the question, am I still learning from Jesus? Am I still wanting to put that into practice? In Bible times, the reason that disciples would follow a teacher around was not just to listen to his teaching, but to copy his way of living. Copying is a a bad thing when we do it in an exam, isn't it? But it's good when we're copying Jesus. Are we still passionate about doing what Jesus would do as those what would Jesus do braces, WWJD, used to say to us? Are we still passionate about learning from Jesus, about copying Jesus and putting it into practice? Or have we settled for a way of being a Christian that stops short of change? The third characteristic of a disciple is that when the going gets tough, we don't get going. We don't run away. As if God has let us down on his side of a bargain. Jesus warned us, didn't he, that life as a disciple wouldn't always be a bed of roses. In fact, he said some quite unhelpful things in terms of attracting an audience and getting people to sign up for this Christianity thing. 
He said some things that evangelists tend not to lead with when they're talking about the good news of Jesus. John 16.33, for example, in this world you will have trouble. Thank you for that, Jesus. And then there's Matthew 6.34, which starts off well enough. Do not worry about tomorrow, but then he goes and spoils it. With each day has enough trouble of its own. And then, worst of all, in Luke 9, and to make matters worse, it says the same thing in Matthew 16 and Mark 8 as well. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So we see several bits of bad news here. To say that a cross is painful is an understatement. And not only is Jesus saying we need to be willing to embrace time, uh, pain from time to time and not run away from it, but maybe even on a daily basis. So far from becoming a Christian uh, as a pain avoidance mechanism, it even seems to involve a recognition that pain will be part of the package. And then the other bit of bad news here is that Jesus says anyone who wants to be his disciple must deny themselves. Now, that really doesn't sit very comfortably, does it? We want to hear Christian speakers who will tell us how to fulfill ourselves, not deny ourselves. I mean, those are always the ones that are the most popular at conferences and seminars, aren't they? The ones who sell the most books. And they're not completely wrong in that, of course. There's a place for that. But it's when we think the Christian life revolves around my personal fulfillment and that God's primary plan for my life, his primary job, is to make me happy, then that's when we're missing the difference between being a disciple versus just a believer or a follower. Now, that doesn't mean that God's plan is to make me unhappy. But this idea that I know God just wants me to be happy cannot be the lens through which we decide what God is saying to us or what he wants of us. And there's a, a bit of a clue to this in the very word disciple because it comes from the same root as the word discipline, which is also something that we generally don't much like the sound of, isn't it? So the third characteristic of a disciple compared to a believer or follower is that when the going gets tough, we don't get going. We don't run away. The fourth characteristic is that we're someone who wants, more than anything, to know him and to be in the centre of his will for our life. To be there on that final day when Jesus says what he said in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That is what I would love Jesus to be saying to me. I think that this idea of sharing your master's happiness for eternity would be pretty amazing. There's a prayer that is credited to Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Order of Jesuits. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for any reward, save that of knowing that we do thy will.
You know, I've always thought that the worst possible position that I could be in is to find myself living in a mixture of God's will for my life and my own will for my life. A mixture of me-centeredness and God-centeredness. And then last but not least, the fifth and final characteristic of a disciple, and maybe this is the one that sums the rest up, is someone who understands their mission is all about serving and giving, not just taking. Who don't just approach the kingdom and their walk with Jesus and their church, asking themselves, what am I getting out of this? But what am I giving and how am I serving as well? And once again, Jesus is our role model, the person for us to copy. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If that's what Jesus' business was all about, then that's what a disciple's business is all about as well. So I wonder how we scored ourselves this morning against that list of five characteristics of a disciple. However well or badly you did, remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8.1. Jesus is not in the business of making anyone feel bad, and nor are we at the vineyard either. So let's have a quick recap of those five characteristics. Number one, a disciple is someone who says yes to Jesus' invitation. Have you ever said yes to Jesus' invitation to become his disciple? Have you ever prayed that kind of a prayer with someone? Or have you just drifted into church over time? If you haven't prayed that prayer, then today is a great day to do it, and we'd love to pray with you for that. But you know, there's another sense of this point as well. You may have been a Christian for years. You may have prayed that particular prayer many years ago. But Jesus has been asking you questions now that you've been resisting saying yes to. Just like in that little rascals movie you've been saying, I'm not hearing this, I'm not hearing this. So today is a great day to say sorry for not listening and to start saying yes again. Number two, a disciple is someone who's a learner. Perhaps you realize this morning that you've actually stopped learning from Jesus. People talk nowadays, don't they, about being lifelong learners. And what that means is voluntarily choosing to keep on learning throughout your life. So is it time this morning to say that I want to recommit myself to being someone who wants to keep on learning from Jesus and keep becoming more like Jesus? Number three, a disciple is someone who, when the going gets tough, doesn't run away. Who doesn't say, God's let me down on his side of the bargain. That I become a Christian and you give me a nice life. Because that is not the promise that he makes us. And we'll close with what that promise is in just a moment. A disciple is someone who, as Peter said in John 6.68 when lots of people were walking away from Jesus and he asks his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Number four, a disciple is someone who more than anything else 
wants to know Jesus and be in the center of his will for their life. Every ambition, every creature comfort, every possession, every relationship, every lifestyle choice comes second. A person who the first ever question we ask about whatever's happening in our life is, how do you feel about this, Jesus? What do you want? And then finally, number five, a disciple is someone who sees their mission in life as serving and giving, not just taking, just like Jesus did. A disciple is someone who rejects the consumer culture that says he who dies with the most toys wins because he who dies still dies. The kind of culture that starts with the question, what am I getting out of this? A disciple is someone who knows that the kingdom isn't about serving ourselves, but it's serving each other and serving the mission of Jesus. Because that's how we can be sure that we're doing what Jesus would do. So maybe Jesus is asking you this morning, how am I giving? How am I serving? And what should I do about it? So those are just some of the characteristics of what it means to be a disciple. Believers are satisfied with just believing. Followers are satisfied with just following. But disciples want something more. Disciples want to be changing and growing and increasingly knowing Jesus and becoming more like Jesus so that more and more of our life is pleasing to God and we can experience his presence more and more. Because, you know, sin and disobedience separate us, but obedience draws us close. So how are we to do that, practically speaking? It's really, really simple. We have to invest in our relationship. It's like a pension. The more that we invest, the more our investment is going to grow. And the less that we invest, the poorer that we're going to be. And it's the same with our relationship with Jesus. And how do we do that? Number one, through reading the Bible, especially the Gospels. Because reading about Jesus is our lens for knowing who God is and what he's like. Number two, we do it through prayer. We can't be friends with someone that we never communicate with, that we never spend time with. As the archetypal Jewish mother says, you never call, you never write. And maybe for some of us, we've been a bit like that in our relationship with God. And number three, we do it by sharing our lives with other Christians. Not just in the queue for donuts on a Sunday morning. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. But in connect groups and in serving together, in doing stuff together, and inviting each other around and sharing hospitality. So maybe I could ask Mike and the band to come up. Thanks, Mike. While they do that, I said that we would close with the reason why when life gets tough and when life has troubles, as Jesus has warned us that it would, the reason why we don't just run away or blame God as if he's let us down on his side of a deal. And it's because God didn't spare himself the suffering of human life. 
he voluntarily entered into it with us and for us in Jesus. So he knows what it's like when stuff happens. He feels our kind of pain and suffering and our feeling that life has let us down sometimes and people have let us down and even we feel God has let us down and he's even experienced death itself. This is the Jesus of whom it says in Hebrews 12 too that for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's our destiny too as his disciples. But it's both and. And then in the very final bit of that passage we started with the the passage that we looked at last week but this is the bit that we, we didn't read. And we didn't read it last week. These are the very last words that he leaves us with in Matthew's Gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What a great way to sum up the good news of the Gospel. That whatever life is throwing at us, Jesus says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As it says in Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, if Jesus is with us, who can be against us? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us.